unfortunately, two people had to pull out of the race because their snowshoe broke. And it's not that the actual shoe broke, it's literally that the buckle opened. Like anything that can go wrong will go wrong in, in minus 25 to minus 35 degrees, you know. And when things go wrong with your snowshoes and you need to take your gloves off, you've got minutes or seconds before your hands. Like I've got my thumb got a little bit of frost in it now. It's pretty, it's all tingly, like three of my fingers on my right hand where I took my camera stupidly out I had to record a video. And then, um, you know, little little errors like that can be very, very costly and can be enough to, and, and wear enough to stop some people getting through the race, unfortunately. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. And today I'm joined again by John Belton, the head coach and owner of number 17 personal training at Vault 10 Upper Hatch Street in Dublin. John is the brains and brawn behind that whole operation. With around 20 years of experience in coaching and over 15 different qualifications or at least 15 different ranges from physical therapy to life coaching to hormone optimization. He promotes a completely holistic approach to health and wellness and John has been part of the Irish ultra running support crew and has assisted the team at European and World Championship level. I've known John since 2006 when we were brought together as part of a team taking on a challenge in Ireland where we climbed the highest point in every county in less than 100 hours and we've remained friends ever since. John has been randomly on the podcast before and I say randomly because the interviews were never planned. They usually happen when I was in the gym and we were chatting after a session and talking about what we were doing, why we were doing and what we were going to do. And I was all the time we'd say, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be recording, not something that, you know, is scripted and you're looking for things to say. And that's kind of happened again. So usually what would happen in the gym is if I have my recording equipment with me, then we end up actually stopping, we stop what we're saying, what we're talking about, and record it. And I was talking to John briefly during a race he was doing last week. And after the race finished, I got talking to him again, and I just thought, hang on, maybe we should be recording this rather than talking about stuff and then wishing that we had recorded it. So if this works out, then we release the podcast. And... I haven't recorded a podcast in a while, so I thought that this was going to be the perfect opportunity. And there's a few reasons why. John is still in Sweden as he defrosts before a long drive back to a warmer climate. So, John, welcome back to the podcast. And before we get into the race, are there any gaps in the intro that you'd like to fill in? Well, thanks for having me again, John. Um, yeah, I suppose I need to update that bio. It's, I've heard that read out too many times over the last five years. Um, there's probably a few tweaks and changes that have happened there, like everyone else, um, specifically in the last few years. And, and I suppose the, other, the one tweak is I'm no longer the brawn number 17. And unfortunately, the brawn had to go for this race, uh, which it was in itself part of the, the challenge. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Great to be back. And looking forward to chatting and hopefully giving some uh, some valuable content across to you and your listeners. Now, what's unusual about this race before we start getting into it is that normally it's me that's doing these races and I'm going to you to get, you know, get in shape before I do them. And you rang me uh, maybe 
was it two months ago, three months at most, asking me had I done this particular race, you were telling me that you were signing up for it and you didn't have a lot of time to prepare. How did you come to do this race? Uh, so this race, a great man has a line and his line is, you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> that's your, Actually, that's your, own, your own line. That's your own line. That's it. You don't know until you go. And I suppose maybe I should take a little, a small bit of a step back and clarify something. The race we're talking about is the Ice Ultra, and it's by Beyond the Ultimate, a UK-based uh, organisation that set up these races throughout various extreme environments. And this particular race is a 230-kilometer run that's done over five stages in what is possibly Europe's last remaining wilderness and is home to the indigenous Sami people. And during the race, you can expect daytime temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees Celsius. It's a different world, and I can remember having been there and having a map of the region I was staying in, which isn't too far from where you were. I was a little bit further north in Kiruna, but the map I was looking at was worthless, as the snow hides all the features, mm. and it makes unevenness yeah. even, and it makes it harder to pick out changes in elevation. Like contour lines are kind of irrelevant. Very and you might as well just flip the map over and look at the, the back of the map that's completely white because that's basically what you're looking at as far as if you're trying to kind of put a map to the actual area you're in. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the yeah, ratio... The area, go on, go ahead, sorry. The area is it's stunningly beautiful. It's, it's, it's wilderness as far as, you know, it's like being brought up into the Sally Gap and then going 230 miles in one direction where there's no roads or no people. I had to bring in the Wicklow, the Wicklow uh, comparison there, of course. Um, but to answer your previous question, how did I get signed up for something like this? Uh, I was training a girl online whose husband asked me if I'd be interested in taking part in the race with him, to which I replied yes. I didn't know anything about the race, but I'm a big believer in going with your gut. And my gut just said, yeah, do it. Um, there's, a, there's a longing for adventure in me that's in you and in many other people that we know. And and I suppose I've had lots of adventure this year, this last 12, 13 months, but there's always room for more. So as we're winding back to January of last year, I, myself and my fiancé, decided to drive down to Portugal to learn to surf instead of sitting in Dublin, uh, waiting, for, waiting for COVID to pass. So adventure's always been there, but as soon as I landed in mainland Europe, I looked at the map and went, holy crap. I can drive to Northern Africa. I can drive to Northern Europe. I can drive to Russia here if I want it. There's a sense of freedom that comes with arriving in, in mainland Europe in your car that I don't know if everybody sees it or wants to see it, but when you do, you go, okay, that's a very interesting thing. So when this opportunity arose, the first thing I thought of was to make it a, a trip. I'm not an athlete by nature. I'm not, a, I'm not an ultra runner by nature, that's for sure. I enjoy staying fit and healthy and well. I enjoy taking on challenges. Um, I'm a coach because I love bringing people, helping people realize their full capacity, not because I'm not a coach because I want to be the best version of myself. I can be running up and down mountains. That's not why I do it. Um, I'm a coach because I love helping people You know, get to whatever level that, that they can get to. Um, but for some reason, this one pulled me. This event pulled me. And um, yeah, I think I had about seven weeks from when I officially signed up started training to when the race started so that as you can imagine in itself presented problems most definitely it did and what you said two things there you're not an athlete you're not an ultra runner well say you are an athlete 
but I'd also agree that you're not an ultra runner. And there are a lot of differences when you look at the specifics of sports. And one thing in particular, which would stand out to me, would be a few times I've been in the gym with you training. And there was times there we I spent the day in the gym and we were just chilling out and go out for lunch. And you said to me, you don't eat. You don't really eat. I eat enough, but you have to eat a lot more because of the type of activity you do. And I would think mm-hmm. that for an ultra runner, being a bit more fuel efficient is something that's really, really important. So I was going to talk about this a bit later as we got into the actual chat about the race. But did you find that your feeding patterns and your need to be feeding a, a muscle dense body had any kind of effect on you during the race? Were you hungry during the race? I knew, look, at I, I've been around the ultra circuit long enough to know the demands of extended periods, multi-stage races. You know, I, I know enough to know what how my body would react in that, in, not in the actual physical environment, but in that type of a challenge. Uh, and I knew, the, a couple of things that came to me, first of all, was that... Um, Look, people trying to race like this for two years, uh, train for it, research kit, you know, research food, do everything, recce the area, do whatever it's you know, I had seven weeks and I knew that I was required. I, the biggest thing I can do is uh, control the controllables. And the heavier I am, the more food I'm going to need to bring with me, the more more weight I'm going to have to have to get through snow and up and down hills, and the harder it's going to be. So straight away, and uh, my goal was to get my body weight down. That was my first goal. So I did that. I was about 82 kilos in the race at about 75. So I lost about a kilo a week um, coming up to the race. I did that. And so another thing I was aware of was that I was going to end up, whether I liked it or not, I was going to uh, end up in a, in, a, in a quite a substantial calorie deficit. So I did a lot of my long training runs fasted right on the other coffee. And I did my, my 50K run. Uh, predominantly fasted, which is my longest one I did. Um, I only started taking on any sort of fuel at 40k, which was a mistake. Like sometimes you gotta make these mistakes. And the other thing is, it was just dramatically reduce my my calorie intake. So for the seven weeks prior to the race, I was in a, in a calorie deficit, losing weight, and um, but putting massive massive energy into my recovery, so as not to get injured. I figured that because it was a multi-stage event, not just in one long run, that for me, one of the challenges were going to be repeated efforts. So instead of going uh, with a traditional kind of template, I did three days on, three days off from running um, and been on my feet. So my three days on looks like one that one day that had either me on soft sand, me with a backpack, me with poles or me running at night. So I was getting exposure to different elements that were going to be part of the event. And another one was just some, some interval work with speed because I always just benefit from having interval work. Uh, that they were just 1K repeats uh, with the last. Of the, and so I, went, I did that every week for seven weeks. And the last week I did 30K of 1K on, 1K off. Um, interval work, I just kept building that up. So it was more time on my feet. Um, and then my last one was just a long run. Uh, so I do three days so that I really overloaded my body, extend the calorie deficit for those three days. On the fourth day, sorry, at the end of the third day, and a bit more, but on the fourth day, rested pretty hard, put lots of time into my recovery, 
uh, lots of lots of food, did a little bit of movement and strength work, um, and and then had two more days like that. So I was kind of having these little mini periods of intensification, superseded with with periods of recovery because I just needed to get used to repeated efforts. This is my approach that I came up with for myself that had no science backing it, but it, I just figured knowing my body and I would train quite intuitively anyway. Um, I just figured that it, it, it was what was going to work best for me and also work best with my schedule and my life being, you know, everything, having a, a business to run and everything around it. It works well for me to train hard on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but if we ever work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, Matt, Leo, as normal, basically. Um, that was one of the biggest things. The weight, weight coming down actually wasn't, wasn't a challenge. Um, it came down pretty fast. But in the last two weeks, I got a small little foot injury, little ankle injury that was a niggler, and unfortunately slowed my training down. Um, but other than that, the prep was pretty much, you know, it was as good as I could expect from an actual training point of view for, for seven weeks out from a race. Now you said there was no signs to it, but in reality, the, the fundamentals of training remain the same. And because of your experience over the years and the types of athletes you've been training, you would have been, uh, I suppose, gaining knowledge from what they were doing and also getting feedback on what you were maybe telling them to do and then you, you were probably changing things around. It's like if you're a mechanic working for Ford, chances are if a Porsche came in, you'd still be able to do something with exactly. it. You'd have that knowledge of how an engine works and you could figure it out. Now, when you exactly. mentioned, the way you were talking to me about your training there, it sounds very high intense. Did you include any kind of low intensity stuff like walking, long walks, hikes? No, I didn't. Um, a lot of people leave that out so, because they feel it's boring. No, hey, well, yes, it's boring. But my long runs um, and my long sessions were spent on the beach where I was at a very, very slow pace because I was quite aware that I was going to end up having to march. I, and you've run at me before, and you've been on hills with me before. And when, when I have to start walking, I'm I'm the slowest walker out there. I've got tiny little legs, short little legs. So, and um, I, I was trying to get my marching speed up, um, and my fast walking. So that was all done on the sand on the beaches. I did. I mean, I did my 50k predominantly, and 42k of that on the beach. And just getting used to being on my feet in the sand and marching and slow. Like I spent a good bit of time there, which was very low level aerobic stuff it wasn't um, wasn't like a, you're, even like a steady long run for, for a marathon program it was much slower than that um, my regrets from you know my, my learnings I suppose most of them I regret was that my marching was still not fast enough um, like there, there are parts that we, of the race that you just couldn't run because you're in snowshoes and um, I just couldn't march as fast as other people so I, I, I broke it down I mean, effectively, my whole race around the first 15k and around the last 10k, let's say, of the race because they were on roads. But in the middle of it, everything else was interval based. So the the route the route is is marked out with red marker posts that are about say 40 or 50 meters apart. And I um I had this suggest uh, it's just the way my brain works. I knew if I was to sit down, if I was to just start walking and allow myself walk that I end up drifting. So I said, every time I cross a post, I'm going to run, even if it's only for 10 steps. So it, it was taking me about 75 to 80 steps between those red poles on the flat. 
So I was running a minimum of 10 steps and sometimes 35 steps every time. So I actually did an interval session for 200 and well, for 200 kilometers, basically, what for me was interval running, whether I was on a hill, whether I was on a flat, or whether I was crossing a lake. If I wasn't able to hold a steady run pace, then I would, every time I crossed the pole, no matter how tired I was, I ran for a minimum distance of 10 steps, and sometimes I ran for 30 or 40. It's kind of random, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's interesting, and I would have my own kind of strategy for racing in cold weather and something similar to what you said there. The pacing is really, really important because you don't want to be going too fast that you're generating a lot of heat mm. because you are kind of well-dressed because you, you have to be dressed enough to protect yourself from the elements at times when mm. you start to slow down because you can't just keep taking stuff off and putting stuff on. You have to mm. be economical and that and time efficient. So if you were, if you were kind of running, as you said, for so many steps... You're not running for long enough to overheat, and then you're not walking for long enough to really cool down. Cool down, Ex- exactly. And exactly. if, if so you develop my own strategy, yeah, and that work. Now, just a question: when you, when you mentioned the sand, do you feel that running on the sand transferred to running on the snow? Well, not directly, but definitely it was extremely helpful. If there's someone thinking about doing the race, unless you're planning on running. The race, uh, the ice ultra, unless you're planning on running it and doing well in it, I would suggest not getting the TSL racing, I can't remember what they're called, racing snowshoes. So I trained a little bit in snowshoes in Sierra Nevada, I went to the mountains and, and I got the snowshoes that hinge. And you just put one of a pair of snowshoes around me, and they're like a tennis racket, and your foot hinges within the tennis racket. Whereas the TSL racing shoes are like, they're like a big flip flop that goes over your shoe and it's fixed on your shoe. And they're much smaller. They're very, very light. I think, you know, they're like a third of the weight of, of a pair of snowshoes. So they're easier to carry on the bag and easier to run in. Um, but the downside to them is that you can't march that is easy in them. You can't, they don't cover the same surface area on the floor, on the ground. Um, and also they just don't, you can't march. You can run, but when you try to march, you're already in a slightly um, flexed position with your ankle because of the, the shape of the shoe. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, but that was a bit of a, a learner for me as well, which which dictated the run-walk versus just trying to walk all the time. Um, uh, you know, they hammered my calves. On the second day, we went up over a mountain, and uh, it was equivalent to climbing Snowdonia. And, like, I was running as, as much of it as I can, but... Like it just destroyed my calves because not alone are you on a hill, but you're in a you're in a, a an extended position or a, a, a increased stretch on your calf, even getting onto the hill. It's like kind of being in the reverse of high heel shoes, if that makes sense. I have no you idea what like you're that. talking about there. No, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, with regards to snowshoes, did you have time to practice with the snowshoes? Did Did you have them in Portugal? No, I didn't. I went to Sierra Nevada in Spain for a skiing weekend and myself and my fiance and we I did some running and snowshoeing there just to get a rough feel for them and uh, it was good good to do it just to get used to it because even just putting them on and off um is in itself is a challenge. They're difficult to slip they don't just pop on and off, so it's good to get used to how how they feel, you know, to, to um Clip them in and out and do all the rest of it. Now, they, I, I like I, I have lots of little points for anyone who wants to do the race. The again, the TSL snowshoes. I, I ended up putting duct tape on. Uh, once I had my straps fixed to a certain level, 
because the, the strap I didn't find was very secure um, and can open very easily. And unfortunately, two people had to pull out of the race because their snowshoe broke. And it's not that the actual shoe broke, it's literally that the buckle opened. Like anything that can go wrong will go wrong in, in minus 25 to minus 35 degrees, you know. And when things go wrong with your snowshoes and you need to take your gloves off, you've got minutes or seconds before your hands. Like I've got, my thumb got a little bit of frost in it now. It's pretty, it's all tingly, like three of my fingers on my right hand where I took my camera stupidly out I had to record a video. And then, um, you know, little little errors like that can be very, very costly and can be enough to, and, and wear enough to stop some people getting through the race, unfortunately. Yeah, and it, when you're in an extreme environment, you can't buy your way out of a problem if your gear has a, has a fault in it. No, you're gone. You're and gone. Then, unfortunately, you're gone. And then with the snowshoes, when you put them on, it widens your gait that little bit so your your feet are folded apart, which puts a bit of extra mm-hmm. strain on your abductors, which move your legs apart. Yeah. It's okay yeah. if you're doing... And also your, also your hip flexors, you know, because you're... Okay. You're lifting up out of the snow more, so there's a bit, there's more of a pull in hip flexors. So the thing about the TSLs, like you do, like we did quite a lot of running in them still, and qu- quite a lot of shuffling, and quite a lot of, you know, there's times where the snow was literally up around my, just at my waist level, where you come off a track and cross a track over, and you know you're, you're wrestling around to pull yourself out of that. And um, they're they're a great shoe, but they're not necessarily. There are two pe- types of people, I suppose, in an event like that, there are people who want to get in and compete, there are people who want to get in and complete, and if you just want to complete, I would go with a different type of snowshoe that was a little bit more forgiving on your ankle, and a little bit broader to make it easier to match. What you mentioned there about the deep snow, that's something that's fairly unique to that region, it's the the boreal forest, or the taiga, where there's very little wind, so the snow Mm. isn't becoming compact, so I was going to ask Mm. you that on some of the trails you were on, could you have gone without snowshoes? Yeah, I, I probably would have taken them off more. Only unfortunately, again, my snowshoes froze on my feet. So what happened was we had temperatures between minus 5 and minus 36. They, the warmest was minus 5 and it was minus 36 another day. But we, for, for whatever reason, like snow was getting caught in around between my shoe and my snowshoe. And, you know, you just keep hiking along. And, and as much as I was knocking it off, I had a knife out to cut the ice away from And then it, it freezes. And it, it froze on me. Um, so, yeah, my snowshoe froze. Um, and and that, was, that became a big problem for me. My snowshoes, when they froze to my runner, um, that's when I started cutting my feet up. My feet just started getting hacked a bit. Um, and that happened to me on day two. And again, on day four, which was a long day, um, which resulted in just tearing the skin off of my feet. I spoke to um, to a guy at the very end of the race, a local guy, and he's like, oh, you need to put uh, floor polish on your snowshoes, uh, loads of floor polish on it and wax, and that stops the snow sticking to them. And if you dose your shoes in whatever that water repellent spray is called, it, um, that also helps. But anyway, lesson learned. What yeah. was the question that you asked me before that there? I can't really remember now, but, but, I, but, but you just made me think of something there now, was uh, your bag was quite big from what I could see, and actually most people were carrying a big bag, so this was a self-sufficient mm. race, and yeah. I suppose in these conditions you need a lot, of, there's a saying in the Arctic that if you travel light you freeze at night, 
So can you tell us what mm-hmm. was in the bag? Just give me an idea of what you were carrying. Yeah, so, so we had um, mandatory kit that we had to have. So we had to have enough. We had te- every 10K there was a checkpoint that was manned by uh, some of the Sami, Sami people. They're fantastic. They're, they're native people in, in Lapland, basically. Um, and then at least one medic from beyond the ultimate. And that, the medics from beyond the ultimate were like, there's a GP, there was you know, ER nurses, there was a number of paramedics, like amazing uh, medics. So we got water at each station. Uh, so you, but you still have to have the capacity to carry 1.5 litres of water. And the mandatory kit was busy bag, um, what they call the blankets, the emergency blankets, <laughs> um, like full first aid kit that had everything from scalpels to uh, tampons and syringes and windproof matches. So you had to have a full survival kit. You had to have a minimum of 2,000 calories of food per day. Um, you had to have like your electrolytes, you had to have all your bits and bobs like that. Uh, you had to have, what else? There's loads of bits that you had to have. Um, you had to have certain amount of clothes that you had to have on you at all stages. Doggles, you had to have on you at all, all that sort of stuff. Um, I would say that the food, like I brought about 2,500 calories a day, but hence the big bag, but even still it wasn't enough. I would have, should have brought more. Um, like my first day, I burned over 9,500 calories on the first day, which was huge. Like, and then you come back and you have a little beef stew out of a bag and go to sleep feeling pretty, pretty hungry still. But, but being honest, I think the biggest challenge from the whole event was sleep deprivation. I think that was the most challenging part of it. And if you're or, not, like, you, sorry. And if you're not sleeping, you're not recovering. You're you're not recovering. You're not like you're not recovering whatsoever. So my, I was track. I didn't track my route at all on the trip, but I look back at it and like my HRV dropped down to twenty something, and my recovery was at nine percent or six percent from the second day. Now I think, um, unfortunately, COVID got into the camp. And someone tested positive on the second night. So, you know, I've been in close proximity with them. So I got tested regularly every morning and evening and didn't fail a test, obviously. Um, but when I look back at my route, I definitely had like increased respiratory rate and I was getting bad night sweats and headaches a little bit and stuff like that. All things I just put down to, to the race. But as soon as I finished the race, I tested positive for COVID. So I would say I was getting late early stages. So the sleep deprivation coupled with the COVID piece kind of a, a tough combination in ways. I'm just going to briefly touch on something you mentioned there when you said HRV. HRV being heart rate variability and that is a very useful tool for measuring your recovery and readiness to train. Now if your HRV mm-hmm. uh, during a training cycle is scoring very low that will be a sign to ease back or not or not train but where you were you didn't have the option of not Oh, oh, sorry, of easing back or not doing what you wanted to do because that was the race. And the HRV... Exactly. So yeah. I didn't look at it for those days, you know. And then HRV would also, I suppose, give you an early warning system of the onset of, of a virus. So that would have picked up on the 
suppose, COVID. So if anybody is more interested in learning about HIV, maybe just do a Google search on it, heart rate variability. And a yeah. lot of the modern watches will actually measure it. But if you have a watch that is measuring heart rate from the wrist that won't pick it up, you have to be using a chest strap to collect the electrical impulse from the heart, which measures the, the gap in between heartbeats, the OR interval, mm. which is essential for recording HIV. And just one other thing you mentioned about having the tampon in the first aid kit, I'm guessing that was for either bullet wounds or for lighting fires. Well, for both, yeah. Um, I have a lot of military friends, I remember they used to say that, that they, that's what they were used for. And they, and they worked in Afghanistan and stuff like that, that tampons were like really, really important to have. But uh, So when I saw that on the kit list, I was like, oh, Jesus what are they expecting us to, to experience out here? But it was for, for lighting fires. So a lot of the cabins that you stay in, on the first night we were, we stayed out in a, in a, um, a tent, TP-type tent, six. I love it. We were on, yeah, so the, we were on reindeer skins on the snow, and but like the inside of the tent was frozen over ice, like it was minus 22 or minus 24, something like that. Like that was a baptism of fire. Um, and then up and off it onto a race to our first cabin, which didn't have electricity or or water, but had a big a big um, like a log stove, whatever you call it, pop belly stove sort of thing. So it was we had to take it in turns to make sure that someone was getting up to keep the fire going. And there was a draft of wind obviously coming through, so you had to have your fireproof matches as well, just in case. And you know we had we fortunately did have um, logs and stuff there that we could use. I think they use their kind of hiking cabins that are self-sustained in the sense that you kind of clean up after yourself and you bring you know you do your own bits and bobs um but it, look if you're not if you're not used to i won't say rough living it's not the case it was, bunk bed. It, was a, it was a warm delight compared to the first night but like when you're, you're taking a crap out in, in a snow toilet outside somewhere and you're shivering and then you're back into no lights it's like it adds a whole different uh, dynamic to it to a 230 kilometer race that there's no training for that, really. You know, you you got to be getting comfortable with uncomfortable, um, and and getting used to those different things because they're the, uh, you know, at the end of a tough day, you come in and you don't you don't realise how much how nice it is to just sit back on your couch and relax and blend up a protein shake for yourself and have the heating on. But when you come in out of somewhere and you have to light a fire, um, and then heat water on a boiler. Uh, you know, get your head torch on and like try and get your gear dry for the next day because you're wearing the same clothes the next day. And um, all the while, not you know, upsetting any of the other participants who are trying to sleep beside you or trying to do whatever. It's um, it just adds a different dynamic to it. But look, as you know, I, I embrace the challenge when it's brought to me, and I, I, like I'm okay with discomfort. It was all just learning, you know. And as we've said before, discomfort nowadays is going to the fridge and there's no milk. No milk. And that cabin you mentioned, that would be a refuge. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but when you go inside it, the fire would be set and ready to light. And there's probably probably a matchbox with matches uh, kind of stuck in the matchbox, which means that if somebody was coming in and they're suffering from the early onset of hypothermia, and they haven't got dexterity in their fingers, they won't have to open the box that the match is easy yeah. to take out, and they can, yeah, with ease, light, light a fire. So that's the idea behind those. And the etiquette is yeah. that when you leave, you leave it as you found it, which is ready for somebody else that's looking shelter yeah. from the storm. And as you, you probably yeah, realise now, it's hypothermia or cold weather injuries are only 
a few minutes away at any stage when it's, you're in that environment. Scary. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, look, at I mean, I made a rookie mistake. Um, so there's a guy recording a lot of the content of what the race is, wanting to kind of talk about it. And he very kind of, from uh, Matthew Kirwan from Hedgehogs versus Foxes. Uh, we were creating like a mini little YouTube video about it. So I was to grab some content at different times. And it's a beautiful part of the world and it's hard. You know, I, I made liner said liner, you're either a, a competitor or you're, you know, participating in it. And I, I wanted to just get around it. And then all of a sudden, as soon as the whistle blew, I wanted to compete in it. So it was hard to take your phone out when you know that there's someone bearing down on you not that far back. But um, also, you know, you're you're running through these these places that are just absolutely breathtaking. These beautiful, that you know, there's point zero 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 one percent of the population will ever get to see them, and uh, it's hard to not stop and take your phone out. Well, I did that one night, as I said, and I'm still paying the the price of that now with with my fingers. So uh, yeah, things can turn very quickly. I don't. The, a very a famous ultra a well respected ultra runner from Italy, a guy called Filippo Rossi. He's a good ultra runner. He's won a few medals, I believe, and did things like that. He was actually staying, he was sleeping beside me in the tent. And uh, on day one, when we all kicked off, I felt very strong, and even though I was chronically dehydrated. But anyway, we're cruising along, and I was sitting there at the second or third position. And he was sitting just behind me and, until we hit the hills. And I started cramping straight away because I hadn't drank enough water. Rookie mistake of, of all the rookie mistakes to make. Anyway, uh, Filippo very quickly caught up with me and passed me out. But he was under pressure and he was walking at this stage. We, were straight, we ran across a lake and we were up onto a mountain. And this was at kilometer 15. And then our next checkpoint was at kilometer 20. I caught up with him again at kilometer 18 and a half, I'd say. And he was... He'd made his own loo on the side of the track and he was trying to go and he was in a bad state. So I kind of shook him and got him going and uh, got him got him to the got him into the camp. He had his earphones in, I wasn't talking to him. He was quite disheveled, got him into the checkpoint. So he was into checkpoint two and the medics uh, you know, he collapsed in checkpoint two. Um I got my water and left him. I got a bit of a fight down I saw him. I found out later that day that uh, he had to be airlifted out he, just from exposure. He went out too hard, hadn't got the fuel in, it got too cold too quick, and they couldn't get the heat into him. So, yeah, there was a helicopter in soon after I left um, and rushed him to the hospital where he was kept overnight. And he did have, um, you know, just just issues related to exposure. He didn't have frostbite or like that, but it's like, even for a well-experienced, it was a good lesson for me to learn, even for a very well-experienced athlete, how you can go out a little bit hard, you can... You know, you can do whatever, you can be prepped, but just like that, the conditions can just have a different plan for you and your race can be over, you know. Well, seeing as, as you've mentioned dehydration and hypothermia, let's just touch on those for a little bit. Some people might assume that you wouldn't get dehydrated in this kind of an environment because it's cold, that you might get dehydrated in a warmer environment, such as the Sahara Desert or mm-hmm. when you're on the beach in Portugal. But what happens to the body is when you're in the, in the cold... You have what's called vasoconstriction, where the blood is is sucked from the extremities into the core to keep the vital organs warm, and that puts extra mm-hmm. pressure on your bladder, and it's actually hard to be drinking enough water because it's like the overflow in a tank; it'll just start to come out. So you, you can be drinking enough water, but you're still not hydrating yourself. 
because you, you, yeah. you're, you're, there's a restricted area. And that can actually happen with, you know, people doing races back home when the weather is cold. That before the race starts, it's cold. The the blood is withdrawn from the legs and it's squeezing on the bladder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, they might need to go to the toilet, but to get that urge. But in your condition, it's hard. So what what we're going to say in the Arctic is that you look to ration your sweat when you can't ration your water. So it's it's very, very important not to overheat. And then if you do overheat, yeah. you lose uh, as part of the body's cooling system you start to sweat when the sweat hits the outer part of your clothing it cools down and then water which is what the sweat is will conduct heat away from the body 25 times faster than when you're dry and in Mm -hmm. in the case you mentioned hypothermia hypothermia starts when the body temperature drops below 35 and a half degrees celsius a normal body temperature is 37 degrees which doesn't sound like much of a difference but if it drops down to 35 and a half degrees, first reaction is you start to shiver to generate heat. And yeah. shivering comes at an energy cost. And if you're not getting the fuel in and you're low in sugars, you're burning up something that you can't afford to be to be using. And then mm-hmm. it gets below 35. And then when it starts to get closer to 32, you're in trouble. So that is the reality of it. And somebody who's really, really experienced it just goes to show that it can actually happen to anybody. And yeah. you don't really expect it to happen in that kind of, a, I suppose, controlled environment, but it is, it is the reality of it. Now, you mentioned earlier on getting a bit of frost nip on, on your fingers. Were you wearing gloves or mitts? Uh, so if I ever wanted to get good outdoor kit, I recommend coming to Sweden and going to northern Sweden, go to a town called Luliga. Um, there's some of the mo- most amazing outdoor stores like very easy to spend all your money there but even in Stockholm the outdoor stores are just on a different level so I got a bit of advice um, and what I ended up wearing was a liner glove then I wore a glove that's used for cross country skiing which is brilliant and then I had a windproof mitt that shell mitt that was wind and waterproof that went over either the single layer or the, the two layers and they were perfect I, the gloves I had were brilliant it worked well. Like, uh, I mean, there, there were two times where my hands got. So when I took my glove off, I got that issue with it. And then on another day on Mount Cabla or whatever it was called, um, up on top of that, my my little finger and both hands went numb for a while. Um, other than that, I didn't feel a problem with, in my hands at all. And what do you have um, described? Well. My... Sorry, sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm interrupting you, and your voice is more important than mine now with this. So go on, go ahead. No, 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 no. My the only issue I had was um, my glasses. My so I bought like sunglasses to wear, and uh, and I had goggles as well. And um, but on mount on the mountain that day there was a blizzard, so you couldn't see thirty or forty feet in front of you. And I had my my goggles on, and they um, I had a buff on as well, and they fogged up. So I lifted the goggles and put sunglasses on, and. Um, and the sunglasses lasted for a while, but then um, the sunglasses, the moisture from my breath froze on the sunglasses. So they iced over and I, I had no visibility. So what I ended up having to do was take the sunglasses off and pull my hood up. So the, the blizzard, there was a, a wide out, like proper blizzard blowing from left to right. And you couldn't see any track in front of you. You can see the red poles that you're marching to, but there's someone 50 meters in front of me or 100 meters in front of me and stages and I couldn't see his footprints. And I couldn't see him a lot of times because you can't really see in a wide out. You can't see that well. 
But what happened, what I was saying, pulling my hood up and tilting my head down and to the right so that the wind was hitting the back of my head and missing most of my head. But what happened in, by doing that was my left eyelid froze closed on the hill. So I kind of ended up just keeping my eye closed and it froze because my teardrops were, obviously my eyes were running. That was the only, that was the only other thing that happened in that, apart from my feet and my thumbs getting sore. That was the other thing that kind of, it was a bit worrisome. And that's what makes it very easy to end up going off course. Like if you were out on your own and you were, yeah. you were trekking in that wilderness and if you're moving your head to shelter it and kind of escape the wind, you will end up kind of tracking in a different direction. And if you were to go 10 metres yeah. off course, you'll end up walking in circles or in S-shape and all of a sudden you end up you're disorientated. No, anyway. Now, I just want to go back to what you mentioned there about the, the gloves. What you've described there is a classic layering system, the liner glove, mm-hmm. the outer glove. Did you apply the same kind of a layering system to your lower body and upper body? Yeah, my layerings on my upper and lower body was, I'd never had an issue once. So I had to be on the ultimate. Uh, the guys very, very kindly gifted me a shell coat, like a raincoat, and also... Um, like an insulated jacket that you have to have. It's mandatory kit, but they're brilliant. I never needed the insulated jacket on the course at all. Um, I just had a marina wool base layer and another marina wool mid layer and then the rain jacket over it. And that was me. I like to run, like, I like to, to run. I run cold, if that makes sense. I don't, I'm not one of these people that needs lots of layers on it for it to have less on um, and, and stay at a lower temperature. So it, for me, felt quite warm in some of the cases I had to open up the jacket to let air in around me. My uh, two layers at the base a uh, base and a mid layer on my bottom. Uh, uh, the, the, I can't remember the name of the kit, but it was really, really good. The trousers were uh, again a Swedish brand and the front of them was windproof. So um windproof around your crotch and stuff like that, which is a, a worry seeing as it was a whatever it was a skier who lost his willy shoot the frostbite last week or the week before we went out there. Um, but the uh, so so all that my torso and my lower body I never had an issue with the cold I didn't feel it once and uh, I had a base layer of socks and then again in that shop in Sweden I went and was like what's the warmest socks I have and they gave me a pair of these woolen board socks type things and they were just unreal and um, I also had an insulated insole in my shoes as well I have keep heat in the shoe I'm okay with the cold I'm okay with extremes I'm okay with extreme heat as well you know. Obviously, my eye freezing wasn't great, and my thumbs doing that wasn't great, and my snowshoes freezing up wasn't great. But when it comes to actually feeling cold, I just got on with it. Um, I had the buff around my neck. I don't know whether, what it was, but my nose was running quite a lot, whether that was just the cold or something else. Um, to the extent that there's actually a photograph I took where uh, the buff completely froze. There's so much like moisture in, in it whether it was snot and everything else I don't know but it froze solid so it was like a tire around my neck a, a hard cold tire around my neck which wasn't ideal and um, you know I suppose a slight kit malfunction other than that the cold wasn't sorry there was another issue with the cold but the issue with the cold was water bottles froze over even though I had insulated water bottles in insulated water bottle holders and we were getting like a tepid warm water at checkpoints, there were times where you got to take a drink and the bottle's frozen solid, uh, again, on the mountain and in some of the later stages where, um, you, you know, it's a bit of a kick in it, whatever, when you're looking for that little, I, I kind of, because of how I cramped on the first stage, 
I just I knew what I needed, so I was taking in about 1.2 liters of water every 10k. I was taking salts all the time. I just kept taking salts, and but it then all of a sudden, then if a water bottle flows, it kind of threw things out the window, which creates an air, uh, kind of a element of doubt in your mind again that you're, you know, worrying that cramps are coming coming at you or something's going to happen if you can't get your water. Well, the next time you're doing something similar, when you're filling your water bottle, add a bit of my wadi and shake it, and then you'll have like an old-fashioned ice pop, and you yeah, know you'll actually, you'll actually enjoy it. Then. And just some of the stuff you yeah. were saying there, like about nobody caring yet, nobody did care what you were going through. Like we were following you online, and all that really matters was you getting into the next checkpoint, and we were kind of timing time between checkpoints. And sometimes I'd be sending a message to Liam. Uh, saying that you're mm-hmm. a bit late and kind of wondering why you're stopping to have a cup of tea or take a few f- f- uh, photographs or whatever. So, yeah, we didn't care. Yeah. Now, what you mentioned about your clothing, you said yeah. about the ventilation. Ventilation is really, really important because that's what allows the moisture yeah. to escape and it lessens the yeah. chance of it being trapped and freezing and then melting and becoming that water. Merino wool, mm-hmm. you won't really get better than merino wool in those conditions. And something you yeah. said there earlier about being cold. Another saying in the Arctic is you want to be comfortably warm when you're inactive. So when you're not really doing much and just standing around or walking, that's when you wear the heavy insulated clothing, jacket. that down jacket. Yeah. But then when you're being active, you have to be comfortably cold. And mm-hmm. it's said that you want to be bold and start cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was a member, I've heard you say that before, and I've like they're second nature to me at this stage. Um, but I could see how some people just got their kits so wrong as well and paid the price for it as well because they were they were pumping sweat, you know, a few K into it, which came back to haunt them. My poles that I had, I had poles and you know the way the poles have that round um like the a snow basin, basket at like the end. a round Yeah. So the the poles I had were black diamond poles, they were good poles. And then there was a screw-on snow basket at the end on both of them. And but uh, the screw-on snow basket fell off both poles within the first 20k. Right, okay. That's not so good. So just something to be aware of. To secure, you'd want to see, and loads of people was the same. Um, because deep snow and you're running versus walking, maybe that's why. Uh, some of the good athletes that were there had like ski poles or like fixed poles so that the snow little basket on the end was, was moulded into it. It was part of it, whereas mine was the, the screw-on ones. At one time, I was going to take a knife and cut my snowshoes off. They were cutting into me so bad. I didn't. But my feet got so cut up that I was using the poles as crutches nearly at the start of one stage because uh, we were on hard ice. And the snowshoes were... I needed the snowshoes, but I, I, it, it was a bit of a mess. If your poles are important, then I would say a little tip would be to just make sure that you don't lose your little basket off the bottom because... You imagine how many times if you're taking X amount of steps, I could tell you how many steps I took, and you're putting a snow pole down every time, and it's supposed to be assisting you, and it's sinking deeper into it. You're not getting the same drive, but that's that catches up, that compounds over over in the case of five days, you know. Exactly. You're not getting the same drive off the pole. Yeah, it becomes like a probe. It's going down into yeah. the snow as if, as if you're testing for something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which isn't a bad thing as well because there's there's times when you're walking across the lake lakes so we'd one stage it was it was 38k on the lake just we did 3k and uh, it was a marathon it was 42k in total and the first two or three k was 
up a hill and then onto a lake and then you're just on the lake for the entire day. Straight lines. And there's parts of the lake where there's water has bubbled up from cracks in the ice. Now, the ice is a metre or, or more thick in places, but what happens is little cracks appear from movement in the lake or, what you know, uh, the ice expanding and contracting and little cracks appear and water kind of eddies out over through the cracks and sits on slushy. top. Of the, yeah, and that, that can be like a race race over event if you put your foot into a big tub of slushy water and then you've another 30k to go with frozen water on your, your foot, like your legs are going to get pretty cold pretty quick. So, you're kind of using your pole sometimes to probe into the slush in front of your water to see how deep it is, um, because that could be it. That could be it. Like all of these things, you start thinking about it when you're out there and you're on your own. And even though there are Sammy and uh, some of the medics and stuff, you know, do you know that they're 10k away and you have a tracker on your back? But when there's a whiteout and you can't see anyone and your hand starts going numb or your foot goes numb. Things start to become real very quick. You know, you think about things very quickly. You know this. You know how quick things can change. So um, you're in a heightened state of alert for a lot of the race, which in itself drains you and, 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 you know, takes its toll as well. There's many different pieces to the to the race that tracks you apart from the distance. It's the, the, the kind of admin of feeding yourself and hydrating yourself and taking your electrolytes and taking your regular meals and, getting to the toilet, uh, you know, like if, if I didn't start the day by going to the loo well, I'd be worried because, again, you're looking for a tree in the middle of a second White House, not ideal if you have an upset stomach, you know. So um, all these little things become very, very important and they're, they're, they're all things that can make or break for a race like that, I think. And as you mentioned trees and just what we said about earlier on about uh, the snow creating uh, a different kind of uh, an environment the only way you really know you're on a lake is because it, there's an absence of trees exactly yeah 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 exactly it's like I mean you deer like there's either rolling fields or, or just yeah, so you're, so you're not expecting to have uh, any kind of hazards or issues there and like you said like it, it is reality of it that there will be little cracks or there could have been a spot where somebody was ice fishing and if they have been ice fishing and filled in the hole with snow snow wax as an insulator and it stops it from yeah. stops the, the water from freezing over there and it's quite possible exactly. that you That's could very very easily step into uh, an ice fishing hole and if your feet get wet you're in real real trouble because the feet are so important the more extreme the environment, the more important your feet become because they get have got you in there and you're relying on them to get you out. So very, very important. Yeah, well, it, for me, it turned, um, you know, my feet for the last two days, well, for the last 15K, the last day was only 15K, which wasn't too bad. It was 65K the day before and my feet were frozen for 30K. That and it was like, it, made, it just made it a not enjoyable day. Um you know, all down to my own errors and not clearing them quicker and not knowing about the the floor polish on them and all of that sort of stuff. So, like, it can change. If your feet are not right, like an event can go from being somewhat enjoyable to being every single step just torturous. I mean, I've, you, I know you've got the cute, most perfect feet in the country, but, like, my two feet are bandaged up now and I'm putting on a pair of shoes is a nightmare. So it's like, it's real, it was a real rookie mistake and I was kicking myself for letting it happen. Uh, I just didn't expect um, 
I just didn't know that snowshoes could freeze. This is probably getting into a race seven weeks before it starts, not not being able to do all your due diligence and research and what can go wrong. And also the fact that I was kind of in COVID isolation a little bit meant I couldn't talk to other athletes, which, um, you know, there, there's something about being able to chat to other people who are sharing the same journey and the same pitfalls and problems that there's something in that that gives you a little bit of respite. But um, anyway, look, lesson learned for, yes. for next year when you sign up, when, when you sign up to do it as well. Yeah, let's see. And you know now what the hazards and issues are and but what you mentioned is very, very important about chatting to other people. It's good if you can kind of learn from the mistakes and the experience of other people and they can kind of help you kind of prevent some of them. But some things you have to learn for yourself. And as I've said before, you don't live your life in hindsight. So if somebody says to me, what would you have done differently? Exactly. I survived it, so... I wouldn't have done as much differently because I've learned from what I, what I did and it, yeah. that knowledge then becomes wisdom as you apply it forward. Now, I'm just actually thinking exactly. of something here. I was meant to be talking to you about the race and I've kind of sidetracked you and we've been nearly talking more about Arctic survival and just mm. how to, I suppose, perform in an extreme environment. We haven't really talked about the about the race can you just give us a typical day? Let's say day one from the from the time you woke up. How did that like what uh, you did for breakfast? How it unfolded? So give us day one. Six thirty start yeah, day one, six thirty start, get your water boiled up. And uh, I had um a mute I, I had some Nescafe that I brought with me and some stevia or some sweeteners. And a little bit of coffee to keep me regular and then I'd have a bowl of beef stew and a bowl of muesli so it's not a bowl it's a bag you know it's freeze-dried stuff so you put your hot water into them get them going uh final kit check make sure everything is dry and ready to go gear up you've got an overnight bag that has a sleeping bag and one dry set of clothes that's that's all you're allowed to bring so your sleeping bag you don't have to carry with you the guys carry it on snowmobiles for you so you give your sleeping bag you give your overnight bag into them um, and then race starts three, two, one, go. Um, and on day one, it was it started on the road for about eight to ten k, and then seven k. I think it was across a six k across a lake, and up into the hills. Checkpoint every ten k. Um, big portions of the race are running. Big portions of the race are marching in a uh, you know in a snowmobile track or something similar like that um, in anything from hard ice to snow up to your knees really consistently uh, undulating terrain or flat lakes I know that sounds very extreme but you're either on lakes or you're going up and down over hills there was no just meandering slow little bits to it it was it was pretty tough and uh, like for, as I said for day two we started off with six or seven K in the lake and then ran over the equivalent of Mount Snowdonia um, in a blizzard. You know, each day, I learned very quickly. So as I say, on day one, I got something I've been getting hit with a bit, well, got hit with really bad cramps. And I cramped from kilometre 15 to kilometre 35, basically, just constantly cramping. I couldn't get more than three steps of running without getting cramps at the start. And then, just piling electrolytes and paracetamol and everything for myself. Anyway, I got over that. 
But I, I very quickly realized on day two, then I started having problems with something else. I can't even remember what it was. It was my heel and my calves were very sore. And I, I just had this little acceptance of myself. I went, you know what? Every day is going to be, just because of this type of event, there's going to be something wrong every day. Because you get in your head and you go, oh my God, I'm cramping. That's it. It's over. Or I'm not going to do as well as I should. But the reality is everyone has something going on. Um, every day something was going to present itself. So I was like, I'll just look forward to whatever it's going to be and deal with it as it comes. So I went from, I didn't have cramps again after day one, thankfully. Day two, what happened was um, my heels got quite sore, my knee and my ankle, the old injury kicked in a little bit. It calmed down. Day three, there was an issue with some of my food. Someone took about a mistake, so I didn't have as much food. So day three was a marathon, basically, on the ice. So I, I, but it was in fairly deep snow. So I opted to try and do it with on, as much on gels as I could instead of eating any food. Um, and then my stomach started turning me, so I started getting a bit nausea and needing to go to the loo and all that stuff. So that slowed me down. Day four, um, sorry, day day two, my feet got cut a little bit, but day four is when my feet froze completely in the snowshoes, and that was like a nightmare. And then day five was, was the last day, so it was like survival at the start, just get around the ice in the snowshoes, and then it took the snowshoes off after 5K because we were on the trails. And ran the last 10k in 10, 11k in maybe 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes. Just ran hard to the end and finished strong. So yeah, it was good fun. I mean, there was always there was 36 people started racing, 33 people started racing, only 18 finished. And because it's all done in a stage race and it's timed, you've kind of got a virtual competitor that you don't know where they are all the time. I mean, on the 65k day, I saw someone. Um, I saw people for the first kilometer and then I didn't see anyone again until the race was over so I, I start, apart from a, a checkpoint seeing the, the marshals um, or the medics as they, so um, it's a lonely race in a lot of ways you're out there on your own which I'm okay with but for some people they really struggle with that but yeah you're, you're, you're going Jesus should I, if I'm running faster now could I be pulling in my total time on Tom who's in front of me or is Andy catching up on me if I, you know so there's there's a different type of race. There's a different types of calculation going on, and it is it's like a game of chess. You're, you know, as I said, I, I knew that. There's one one guy, um, an Irish guy, Tom. I can't remember what, what Tom's second name is. You Curran. know, Tom Curran, and Tom's like six foot two or three, and he's like he just marches at a strong pace, big long legs on him. And I knew that if I ran for 20 steps in between each one of the red flags every time and walked for the rest of it, I could hold the same pace as him. If I ran for 30, I could creep away from him. So I knew what I had to do. And if I stopped at all, I was like, right, I've stopped here now. So I'm going to do 40 steps in between the next two red flags to try and make up for the time I'm taking off. So there's a constant maths equation to the race, which distracts you and gets you through it as well, you know. Did you get an opportunity to get to know the other competitors? Yeah, I did, of course. I spoke to a lot of them, especially at the start and then towards the, the end of the race when I originally, yeah, I did, I did. It's great people, some lovely people in it. Um, there was a period, again, where, you know, everyone was afraid I might have had COVID, so everyone was keeping their distance, as was I, not, and so not to spread it around the camp, so they, we lost a little bit of communication. Now, I have to say that the whole thing was handled so professionally by the crew from beyond the ultimate, like the regular testing, 
how they isolated us, how they kept us separate, but how they also kept us calm and didn't cause any problems. They were fantastic. And there was no outbreaks throughout the race. There's only the one case, and that was nipped in the bud straight away. So, yeah, I got talking to a lot of them. I didn't have any massively shared experiences, which I've sometimes had in the past in events where you, you meet them and you chat to them, but definitely made some acquaintances with people who I'm sure I'll be speaking to again. Um, people who have done some, some spectacular things in the past. Um, a number a number of people who have done big adventure races said that it was by far the toughest thing they've ever experienced. We had mentioned when we were chatting that you were probably in a way the least experienced there but I did oh, reiterate yeah. that which is least experienced with that kind of an event but you have been training for a long time so you didn't just go into this mm. foolishly you have a very mm. very long kind of training history you've done a lot of running cycling mountain biking surfing skiing yeah you've done a bit of everything kayaking yeah open water swimming mm-hmm. so you just had to get a little bit specific adapt to the cold yeah. environment as as best you could and then you make up for kind of short fallings with the gear and that's where the exactly. cloth the clothing helps with the adaption as well like so that's going to protect yeah. you from the yeah. elements of that now you mentioned 33 started so there was almost a 50 percent dropout did you feel mm-hmm. like stopping or dropping at any stage in the race not once not no. once no 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 i i feared it i feared it I was afraid that I would be forced to retire if I got COVID, and I was devastated. Um, and I was also, uh, you know, it was on my mind that I didn't want to get an injury or uh, like cramp up and have to retire. But there was never a stage where I was going. Like it was, look, I'm not a dramatic person, and, and people said that to me at the start of the race. People who didn't finish the race they said, "I'll have to break my leg before I'd, I'd be pulled out of a race like this." And these are people who did get pulled out of this the race. Um, for me, I, I just don't understand. I don't have that. I'll give up. I don't have that there. You know, you're you're the same. I've seen, I've seen you run races where you're nearly looking drunk on your feet running, and uh, um, and then all of a sudden you pull it out of the bag and you come back and you end up placing for Ireland in in hundred kilometer races. It, I don't have a. I don't have that in me. I don't mean to sound like it's not bravado. It's just I, there's never a moment where I was like, "This is too tough. I'm going to give up." It's a mindset, isn't it? And I think when you have a race that's point to point, it it can help with that mindset as well. When you know you've a definite yeah. start and definite, exactly. definite finish line. But I also find exactly. that exactly. Yeah, with stage races, because you have that stop start and you're going from being uncomfortable. Say you say on day one when you start off you're all excited, you're looking forward to it and you're embracing that uncomfortableness and you're enduring and then you get to the towards the end of the stage, you're finding that it is quite tough and then you have a finish line and you're relieved mm-hmm. that the finish line is there, then you have a bit of comfort, a lot more and you have shelter mm-hmm. and you have companionship, you have people to talk, to share stories and you're listening mm-hmm. to what people have been through in the day but then you have to wake up the next morning without having adequate rest and knowing you have to do it all again even getting out of your sleeping bag so you're going from from being uncomfortable to being very very comfortable and and the comfortableness you feel after the end of a stage is as comfortable as you've probably ever been because they also say that the greatest pleasure is the removal of 
pain or discomfort and that's what you've got. Yeah. So you're then yeah. going from having a fresh start on day one when you're all excited, like the little puppy dog going to the vet, happy out, mm-hmm. but then the next day you know what's ahead of you. And it could be the same distance, but it's harder because you have an accumulation of fatigue that is in your legs from the day before. Then on top of that, mm-hmm. you have a, t- a deprived sleep and you're in the calorie deficit. So every yeah, day exactly. is getting harder and harder. And we were yeah. chatting before the last day. And I think you said to me, oh, well, next day is only a short one. And I think I remember saying that, look, it, it's not over, it's over. Tomorrow is going to be quite tough because it's not yeah. just 10K. It's 10K on top of 220. That's a big ask. Yeah, yeah. I actually felt, so had I not had a bad day on the 65K day, which was the day four, um, I feel like I could have pulled in a position possibly on that day. That's all. That's sorry. That's hearsay. That's irrelevant. But I do feel like, uh, other than that, I feel like I had another five days in me. If I'm being very honest, maybe that shows I didn't push hard enough from the start. Um, but I finished the county. That was really enjoyable. I'm tired now. I'd like a good night's sleep, but I could definitely sleep in the tent and go again tomorrow for another 60k if I have to. I think it's. Uh, it's not, not, I think, I know that like our capacity is so much greater than we think it is. Our capacity to deal with discomfort, you know, is so much greater than we think it is. And at the end of the day, your mind, someone said, what do you think about when you're out there? And you think about everything and you think about nothing. You think about business, relationships, running, training, everything. And then there's times where you just don't think and you just breathe and you listen to the rhythm of your feet hitting the ground and you do that and that that in itself is it's transcendental in a sense and it's very rhythmic and it's and it's um once you get in once you can find that state in your training and once you can find that state in your event uh, like pain is just something that comes and goes and then um you know i do feel like if there's another five stages to that race if they said look we should turn around now and run this all back to where you came from um I would have been up for it. I mean, as I said, that probably shows that I, I didn't push hard enough on different days or, you know, whatever it is. But it, it was a really, really tough event. But um, well, that just yeah. what you said there about being able to do. Like I can relate to all that when you're saying about all the stuff you're thinking about, home, business, and all that. That will go through your head. But all that really matters is the next step. That's because you're in, exactly. you're, you're in you're in a situation, and although it's a controlled environment, it is still serious, and you have to take it seriously. So the next step is what really matters. And you were talking there mm. about being able to go for a few extra days. Totally believe that. And it's the same way as you can see people being spent when they finish a marathon, but they could maybe do fifty k or hundred k. It's all down to the the pacing, and pacing is really rationing your energy expenditure. And that's, and that's what that yeah. is. And the same if you're in a gym. You can lift a one rep max of 150 kilos. You say doing your a squat or a bench press. Or you could lift 20 kilos 10 times and you're getting, you, you won't be as fatigued, but you're, you're lifting a higher volume. So it's the way yeah. you're actually rushing out your strength, energy, expenditure. And that's, you You yeah. didn't know, and you don't know what you don't know. What, what, sorry, what I mean by that is, with regards how you were going to perform in, in that environment. Like you, were, you haven't mm. been doing 
runs of 100k or taking part in 24 races so you don't know and something interesting you mentioned there where you were taking gels and getting the cramping well you needed the gels for energy but the type of energy the gels were giving you was a kind of a, a quick release in your body wasn't able to metabolize it quick enough and that's what was causing the cramping. What, what probably happened with, with the gels well, was... I got, I got stomach, uh, I started feeling sick from the gels. Most yeah, well, the, cramping. the cramping was day one. What can happen with the gels is, because if, if, you're, if you're working aerobically, which you probably were, you're not using the, the same demand isn't isn't there for mm. the, the glycogen sugars of the fuel glycogen, so they're yeah. inside your, that's inside your stomach and chances are it's it's the kind of water part of that that's been more absorbed so you're left with this kind of gloopy mess kind of clogging up your system and that's what causes you the problems yeah no i made uh i made up food for myself uh I, I would definitely have brought more pre-made little like um, flapjack things lots of calories in it because uh, I just need like even when I when I do marathons like, I'm constantly eating I need fuel constantly coming in there and uh, so I probably would have brought more actual food um, and and just anyway look lots of lessons learned I survived it I enjoyed it uh, and you would do it again thing, I would do it again yeah yeah I think the best thing about it for me was having those red markers. I only ever ran from one red marker to the next. I never ran 230 kilometers. It just happened. That, and that, was, that sounds very cheesy, but for that reason alone, if someone said to you, right, you have to turn around and run back, I'd go, okay, where's the first red marker? Well, I'll get to that. And the rest is history. Like, that, that sounds really cheesy and stuff like that. But, like, it, you know, it, it backs up the whole journey of a thousand miles past the first yeah, step. Yeah, it's a process. Like, it was. That was it. Like, follow the red markers. What do you have to get the first red marker? Find the second one. And you know what? If you if you want to if you want to walk, I then I do the math. I'm going to walk for two red markers now. But that means I have to run for 40 steps at the next one. Whatever you know. And and all of a sudden you've done 60k. You know, if that was just a straight line without red markers on it, or if it was stuff like that, I would have probably found it harder in ways. It was just a track that I was following. I'd been looking at my watch more and. I didn't want to get caught looking at my watch because like your pace isn't where you want it to be ever. Anyway, no matter what what you're doing, you you always want to run it faster. So I just had my watch going for time most of the time. So I just see what my current time was as opposed to my pace or where I was because it wasn't going to serve me. There was nothing to compare it to. There's nothing to uh, gain from it really, you know. Yeah, sounds great. And. Like you said as well, not many people get to experience what you experience, and it's nice being in these kind of environments without being a tourist. It's that yeah, spirit of adventure, and this is probably one of your most memorable holidays, really, when you think of it. Oh yeah, big time. No, I mean aside from the fact that we're in Bowden now, which is a couple of hours away from the Arctic Circle, and the two of us have COVID, so we're we're getting over the tail end of that before we embark on a trip back down through through mainland Europe back down to Portugal. But it has, it's been a very memorable experience. I mean, I, I mean, I was absolutely blown away by the level of interaction and support I got from people on online and social media. And I mean, I was embarrassed by the messages I was getting from people, which like, you know, as you know yourself, you, you just don't expect any of that. And, it, it definitely was helpful. I did have a moment on my 60k run where one of my clients messaged me and said, "We're following your little green dot. You're doing great, Shane Mac. You, you know, you 
not that not that I'm doing it for anyone other than myself, but you know, you are there are people that are eyes on you that it's it's people like to see success and to see you achieve. So it was very powerful, you know. Yeah, that's really true and it kinda of gets people involved and I suppose when I was yeah, tracking exactly. it, it was it was great fun tracking it and I was in touch with Liam every day and we were trying to work out what's going on, where it is he, what's he doing. And I, yeah. I think I gave you a very important piece of advice, which I hope you followed, which was uh, don't eat the yellow snow. Or as the, the Sammy say, don't eat the snow where the rain, di- where the huskies go. Oh, yeah, very good, very good. No, there's no yellow snow eating, no yellow snow touched. Um, the Sammy guys are just, they're super, super group of people as well, like very positive and like they know that territory so well. Like they're, they're with the medics, but they're probably even better than the medics at reading what sort of state someone actually is in, you know. I'm sure they've seen people who've suffered all sorts of exposure issues and frostbite and frostbite and all the rest of it. But um, look, it's an amazing experience. Very fortunate to have gotten to experience it. Um, again, big thank you to Beyond the Ultimate for putting the event on and, um, and, and making us all feel so safe. But at the same time, feel like we were on an adventure and not being not in handheld. I definitely would highly recommend it. And if anyone wants to do it and wants advice, you know, how to find me. I'm conscious of the time as well now because before I rang you, you were you were kind of telling me it was nearly uh, bedtime because it's a long day tomorrow. So uh, we'll finish <laughs> up now. And if anybody wants to follow you, what's the Instagram handle again there? It's just John Belton, J-O-H-N-B-E-L-T-O-N. It's probably the best one to get me on. Course, yeah, sure. I have my, I have my phone number and everything on my Instagram. I'll chat to anyone about anything, uh, fitness and sport related. I won't deal with marriage issues or anything like that. Okay, I'll give you a call when you get home. Just have a catch up. Have a catch. Have a proper catch up. Yeah. And yeah. anything yeah. else do you want to add before you finish up? Or no, I th- thank you to you for for your, all your advice as well. My ear, I'd say your ears were burning when I started cramping up. It was like John O'Regan's kick on to fucking kick me now when he sees how fast I went out here at the start. I was going, to, um, oh yeah, the first day. I, that's I was saying at the lane, way too fast. Yeah, and, and I said I could be wrong, but I think he's going going too fast based on what he what he said. Well, but so I was too too fast, but also I just cramped up because I. This is the lesson was that I had it like with a camera crew with me and I'd driven up for five or six days and I collected someone from the airport and I did everything bar look after myself and prep myself for a race I hadn't drank enough water and that's what kicked in straight away for me so uh, it was the best thing that happened to me because it slowed me down and um, yeah there you go and it can be hard not to go too fast that's it's like it's human nature especially at the start of an event you have that kind of fight or flight you're excited and you want to go and it's experience and I have that to beat yeah you had to beat Spencer <laughs> Had to beat Spencer, which you know, and I'm well, glad I got those. Well, well, okay, well, look at even against the thing. Okay, so you bet Spencer, but he doesn't have an excuse, he has a reason for dropping out. So I just wonder, is did you beat him or do you call this kind of a, a forfeit? Or well, I'm, based off my group, I had, I had COVID symptoms as well, so I'm going to say that I don't know. We'll see, we'll see what he right. says. He'll tell me what it is anyway, won't he? Right, okay. Right. All so right. there could be a rematch okay well look uh, th- thanks Sean and if you've enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts you might uh, pass it on to a friend or subscribe on Apple iTunes or Spotify thanks and until next time